0: Good morning, door of hope. He is risen. This morning's scripture reading is taken from the book of John, chapter 20, verses one through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the, face, with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read from your word at this moment when you've risen but you weren't there, Lord, how this feels like this moment now while we wait for your return. We know you have risen, we know you are here, but we do not have your tangible presence. But Lord, we desire so much to believe, to go forward and proclaim this great message of your defeat over Satan, sin, and death. So, Lord, we just ask that you would speak to us through the community of your people, through the preaching of your word, and through the confirmation of your spirit. May you be glorified and honored this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thanks so much, Karen. Uh, happy Easter, Dorf Hope Northeast, again. Um, It is a happy Easter. I'm just, I'm seriously thinking, we're just talking with somebody who said basically the same thing about my kids. It's been like a year since I've seen some of these children, which is really sad and really good to see them and to hear them and to see all of you. Um, It's a very happy Easter. It's really good to be together. It's also a weird Easter, huh? It's weird. Um, It's a heavy one. It's a grief-filled Easter for I'm guessing most of us, and you know, I don't necessarily have to recount all the weird things that are going on in the world and difficult things and and grief-making things, but of course we're in the middle still of a global pandemic with COVID-19 that's brought about isolation and all kinds of economic trouble for folks and stress and, and death for many. Um, We've been dealing with all kinds of issues related to racial injustice and then societal unrest. Some of it healthy, some of it deeply unhealthy. In the last few weeks, we've been dealing with mass shootings. We've been dealing with just increased political fragmentation and extremism on both sides. And whatever else is going on in your life is on top of that. So of course, like COVID and these things don't stop just because like you have family crisis. Or your, your marriage starts to crumble, or you have troubles with your children, or you feel lonely and isolated, or your friendships leave you in the dust, or whatever. Um, I was me- talking with somebody this week who, who essentially categorized it as like, you know, I've, I've basically, uh, you know, figured out a, a way to survive during COVID and all this stuff. I can keep my head above water, but if sort of one more stressful thing falls on me, then I go to pieces. And I've been thinking about that since I heard it, and I think that was very well said. I imagine most of us feel like that. Um, For me, this is a year that, you know, uh, at its best, can reveal and remind us that there is not any answer in our mere human faculties or institutions or whatever to bring about utopia or bring about heaven on earth or bring about kind of the answer to all of our issues that plague us. you know even though God willing we're on the hopefully the downswing with covid nineteen we 're about to see some degree of return to normalcy it 's like death that that fact alone doesn 't deal with death, <laughs> and that fact alone doesn 't deal with depression it doesn 't deal with social isolation it doesn't deal with any of these things that are that are problematic for us and i 'm definitely convinced that neither sort of the progressive belief that we can we can and will kind of continually on our own efforts, slowly build or progress toward a better world, neither that nor the conservative belief that we can and sort of will maintain and preserve all the good things that were from a previous time, neither of those uh, are gonna offer legitimate hopes to us. But Jesus raised from the dead, (laughs) you know? Jesus raised from the dead. And if, if that's true, If that is true, I I don't assume everybody in this room believes that that's true. But if that is true, uh, then it validates everything he taught including the fact that he didn't just overcome death for himself but for you and for me and for every single person in this world. Uh, Everyone who would bend the knee and trust him. Um, So that's our hope today. and we have that hope even as though, even at the same time, we have all this grief and all this weirdness and all this anxiety and all this struggle. And as I thought about what to preach, hopefully briefly for this morning, um, I immediately had the thought of this is very much the situation that the disciples found themselves in on that first Easter. They were dealing with heavy, heavy grief, every single one of them. And that grief gave, gave way to all kinds of other emotions and different reactions, And so we're just going to quickly look at Jesus' resurrection encounters with three people. These aren't the only three people he appeared to, of course, but they're three really important stories in the Gospel of John. First is Jesus with Mary Magdalene. We're going to see grace in the face of hopelessness. Thomas, grace in the face of skepticism and doubt. And then Peter, grace in the face of failure and humiliation. So first, Jesus and Mary Magdalene. John 20, 11 through 18, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. But Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. And we'll stop there. So I think think this is a picture. This is... Lots we could mine from this text, but one of them, at least, is that the incredible grace that Jesus shows to Mary in the face of hopelessness. The finality of Jesus' death was a foregone conclusion for her. And you know that because you, we see her look him in the eye and not know that it's him. You see that? And maybe there's something in here about how, you know, the difference between Jesus' resurrection body and his previous body—probably— But I think more so than that, there's this idea that she knows when you see someone crucified on a Roman cross and they die and they're put in a grave, you don't see them again. You just don't. That doesn't happen. No one comes back from this. She knew that she was never going to see Jesus again. And with that, her hopes of perhaps this was the Messiah, perhaps the kingdom of God is on its way, and all those things died along with just losing a friend and someone who loved her and valued her and helped her in significant ways. So she knew she'd never see him again, but then she sees and hears the words of Jesus right in front of her there physically, bodily, and the text says (laughs) Mary thought she was a gardener, or he was the gardener. (laughs) Like, this must be the, the gardener. The power of what she knew, the power of this story made it impossible to actually access what was right in front of her. She had truly lost all hope, even over against what she could see with her own eyes. But Jesus' response to her was not, well, didn't you know? Didn't you know? I didn't, wasn't, wasn't I talking some about how I was going to be raised? Didn't you hear that I was going willingly to this, that this was all part of my plan? He didn't shame her, he didn't make her feel stupid. Instead, he makes the first move of revelation and of restoring that relationship. He calls out to her, Mary. And hearing her name through his voice and his tone, it clicked. This could only be Jesus in the flesh right in front of me. And it's interesting, we, 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 the context tells us we see Jesus say, hey, don't cling to me. Um, so she must have just gone and just grabbed hold of him, which is a very reasonable reaction given their relationship. And Jesus isn't in, in saying, stop clinging to me. He's not saying like, oh, this is weird or this is gross or get off me or anything like that. I think what he's saying is when he, when he talks about how he still needs to ascend to the Father, he's like, yes, it's good for me to be with you right now here in this moment, but I have to go so that I can send you my spirit who will be even closer to you than this embrace. He'll be inside of you. He'll be indwelling you. And more than that, this is a necessary step for me to actually come back again bodily in the new heavens and the new earth when the kingdom is reinstated and Jesus is once again face to face with his people, never to be taken away ever again. So don't cling right now. Don't cling right now. There's something better on the way. But in the face of her hopelessness, Jesus doesn't meet Mary with disappointment, but he makes the first move to offer grace, to offer hope, to offer peace. And so if you in the middle of 2020 and 2021 are feeling hopelessness and you feel like somehow you're letting God down or God's ashamed of you because you're not trusting the hope that he has for you, I think the same applies. Jesus, through the ministry of his spirit, wants to comfort you. He wants to penetrate that hopelessness and bring you hope. Let's keep going. Jesus and Thomas. Jesus and Thomas, verses uh, 24 through 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. And eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And here we see grace in the face of of Thomas's skepticism and doubt. And it tells us that he was not with them when Jesus came. So we, we skipped some verses here, but Jesus had shown up to a group of the disciples earlier. Evidently, Thomas was not with them. Maybe he was grieving alone. There are plenty of us in this room that when grief and tragedy strikes, you just need to go be alone and you need to process it on your own. And maybe that's what was motivating Thomas. But Thomas or doubting Thomas, as he's often called, you know, that's kind of like a little cultural jab, you know, this person's doubting Thomas or whatever. That's where this comes from. He struggled, you see it, with deep, significant doubt. Here the other disciples, the men that he traveled with for these three years, they're telling him, we saw the Lord! We saw him! Isn't this amazing? This is good news! And even out of their mouths, he couldn't believe it. Maybe he wanted to. Maybe he just didn't want to get his hopes up. Whatever was going on, he was definitely trusting his own narrative, again, his own gut reaction to what is and isn't possible His own sense of what was over against the witness of his community, even the witness of the community of the apostles of Jesus. And he had this evidential criteria he really needed to have met. To paraphrase, I need to see him, I need to see his wounds, and I need to put my hand in them or I'm not going to believe this stuff. This is serious. So once again, Jesus comes to this man (laughs) Who's in this kind of emotional state and intellectual state? And does Jesus respond with banishments or mockery or impatience or frustration? No. Jesus welcomed Thomas's questions. And, and he actually offered to come as physically close as he possibly could to allow Thomas to put his finger inside Jesus' side. Jesus' response to Thomas' skepticism and his, his doubt, it was patient, it was gracious, it, it was dignifying. He didn't say, that's a stupid question. He said, here's the answer to your question. Let's come explore this together. His response was pursuing Thomas still, even though Thomas doubted what was going on. And there's another lesson for us here. Uh, Probably lots of lessons, but at least one is that Jesus doesn't want you to ignore or shortcut your doubts. He wants you to bring them to him without fear or scandal because he can handle them. Um, He will love you through them. Um... And if that's true of Jesus, may that be true of our community, Door of Hope Northeast, that this is a place where people who have these questions and doubts do not feel this misbegotten sense that, well, I just have to pretend that I believe all the same things, or that this isn't weird, what we're saying we believe, or that this isn't uncomfortable, or that this doesn't stress me out late at night, thinking about the implications of these things, or that maybe I do believe, but I really don't want to believe, I don't want this stuff to be true, or wherever the doubt surfaces, Jesus just presses in. And may we press in, door of hope, same way he does. And so um, you and I, we don't live in this narrow point in history where the resurrected Jesus was walking the earth. There were 40 days of that, 40 days where he appeared to all hundreds of people, it says, um, where people could go, whoa, there's, okay, he, I saw him teaching, I saw him on the cross, and now I see he's back. This is crazy. Oh, and he's still got these wounds. Oh, well, this is weird. Um, we don't live in that time, so we're not going to be able to find him and say, hey, Jesus, can I, can I touch your rib? Uh, but nonetheless, Jesus acknowledges that here. He says you don't have to see him in the flesh to know him. He says, in fact, blessed are those who don't see and yet still believe, but nonetheless, whatever your present source of doubt, he wants to walk with you through that, through his spirit. And one day, he claims... He's going to be standing in front of you face to face again. Again, we're not, this isn't just like spiritual metaphor stuff. He says, look, I'm ascended to the Father, but I'm coming back in power. And you'll see me again. You'll see me again. So Jesus is gracious in the face of even one of his closest followers, skepticism and doubt. Let's do one more. Jesus and Peter. We skip ahead again to John 21, 4 through 7. It says, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord! And when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And we'll stop there. The story goes on, but we'll stop there. And this is the story, this is a, a, an instance of the grace of Jesus in the face of failure and humiliation. Now, this is probably not the first time that, um, that Peter had seen the risen Jesus. Again, Jesus had already appeared to some groups of the disciples. But this, is, this leads into the first kind of one-on-one exchange that they get uh, that answers some of Peter's lingering questions around like, am I good with Jesus or not? And because, if you you have to understand this, to understand this, you need to know what had happened before. Peter had been given special privilege as one of the three kind of inner circle disciples with Jesus. And not only that, he had been given, granted by Jesus, special, kind of a special authoritative role in the forming of the early church. And we even see that play out in the book of Acts in some important ways. But Peter uh, was given special, like, privileges by Jesus. But the night of his betrayal, Jesus tells Peter, hey, you're going to betray me three times tonight, by the way. You're going to deny me. Peter says, of course I'm not. Well, of course he does, right? Publicly refuses to associate with Jesus as Jesus is being led to his death. So he not only denies Jesus, betrays Jesus in a very real sense, but then he sees his hopes dashed as Jesus is killed in front of him. And Peter's probably assuming... Okay, well, this is the end of Jesus. This is the end of all this Messiah stuff, this kingdom of God stuff. But Jesus was still my friend, and I loved him. And the last thing that Jesus is going to think about me is the fact that I betrayed him. Maybe Jesus on the cross, if he thought about Peter, he thought of Peter as a coward, as a traitor, as a fool, maybe the wrong guy for the job. So Peter was not just a failure, but we have to assume that he was carrying a unique level of humiliation and despair. Um, So what does he do when he hears that Jesus is out on the water amongst them? He runs and he jumps into the water to swim after his friend, his king, his savior. And this this tells us some things about Peter But more than that, this tells us something about Jesus because Jesus, Peter knew from his time with him, Jesus was the kind of man, the kind of king, the kind of savior, the kind of God who when he stares down our deepest failures, our most cowardly betrayals, our most destructive sins, he welcomes us with open arms. Peter had to believe that to go diving headlong after Jesus into the water, not caring about what a fool he had made of himself just days before. Peter had spent enough time with Jesus to know that, that should he ever see this Jesus again, even with crushing insecurity on his own part, he'd be welcomed in with open arms into this, the, the infinitely perfect loving arms of this gracious friend, this gracious brother figure, this gracious father figure that he was and is. This is the heartbeat of the gospel. You've heard it. If you've been around Door of Hope, you've heard it put this way a lot of times: that on your worst day, at your lowest moment, um, however you define those things, Jesus loves you with a dead set, willful, faithful, committed love that you can't even imagine. And the the scary thing is, He knows our lowest moments. Like He 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 doesn't have to like imagine them. He's God. He's divine. He's omniscient. And his perfect, divine, complete knowledge is scary to us. He knows the depths of your sin and my sin, your rebellion and my rebellion, perfectly from every angle in perfect light. He knows the ugly things in your heart and in mine that we're too afraid to confess to anybody. He knows the ugly things that, that we do when no one is watching. He knows every person who carries his image that we've wronged in some way. He knows every moment of indifference or hostility or even hatred that we've had towards him. We know our failures with like a partial clarity. He knows them fully, (laughs) perfectly. And do you know what he wants from us? Even at that moment? to jump in the water and to swim out to him and let him embrace us and hold us and heal us and grow us and forgive us and welcome us into his kingdom and walk us through death when it comes and resurrect us into new life in his future kingdom that's coming in real history just like his resurrection did and a day in a kingdom that will never end. He doesn't want you to cower in shame or in fear. The whole point of the cross is that we can't save ourselves. He knows you can't save yourself. He knows you have no power over your sin or over your own certain future death. And he died and was raised to do everything necessary to deal with every inch of it. And we don't have to do anything to be worthy of this. How do we know? Because he already did it. (laughs) He already died. That was 2,000 years ago. He already did it for you. There was nothing for you to do that could, you weren't even born yet. He already did it. All we have to do is receive it as the free gift that it is by believing in him in the language of John, by trusting him. All we have to do is to say, I want what you did for anyone, Jesus, to be done for this one. I receive it for myself. And if I receive it and I trust you, then I'll follow you. I'll follow you as well. Um, to conclude, at, at the end of the Lord of the Rings, everybody, probably a thousand preachers preaching this right now, this, this illustration, but at the end of the Lord of the Rings, after the harrowing adventure full of pain and suffering and face-to-face confrontation with real evil, and they've destroyed the ring and they've sacrificed everything to do so. Samwise Gamgee wakes up, and he's safe, and he's at peace, and he's not alone. He sees his friend Gandalf, and what he says, from Sam's mouth but the words of of Tolkien, he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And because Jesus is alive, not as a metaphor, but as a real bodily reality, now sitting at the right hand of the Father, the answer is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. Revelation 21, 3-5, giving us a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, which is where we're going to spend eternity with one another and in the presence of God himself. Says, it, it says this, these are John's words as well. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He's risen. Do you believe that? He's risen. If that's true, nothing is the same. And every sad thing will come untrue. Amen? All right, let's pray.